All right, wait. Let, let's have a pee. <laughs> Strong start. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Not Another Whiskey Podcast. I should say a very special episode of Not Another Whiskey Podcast. My name's Mitch Beshard. I'm your co-host. And as always, joined by the infallible, flatulent Nicholas Palaki at my side. Sorry, I didn't mean to say flatulent there. That was the wrong word, wasn't that it? was the wrong it? word. I don't I know. You might want to retake that. Do you know what that word means? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have hung out with you a few times, mate. So, you know, it's not far from the truth. How are you doing anyway, bud? I'm doing very good? well. Yeah, very well. Good, 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 good. Just enjoying a bit of the New Jersey snow at the moment. So I've got uh, oh, six inches of snow outside. Yeah, we, we, we've got it as well. We've got, I think we've got about the same. Aye. <laughs> why do you always giggle when you say like six inches? <laughs> well, you licked your lips when I said it. So that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, as we've already said, we have a really special show lined up. It's a double hitter, uh, and it's the first time that we'll have two guests whose careers were first spent with their heads tucked between the armpits and legs of other men. They're total scrumbags. They used to have tasting notes like cauliflower ear, but now they've seen the light and moved from the glamour of professional rugby into the world of Scotch whisky. Laddies and lassies, please give it up for Scotland international rugby players and whisky experts, Rudy Jackson and Chris Cusser. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Yes. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks. For, yeah, great to be here. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> lads. Welcome. Good to see you guys. It's been a while. It's been. Nice. I think I, so I met, I met Nicholas at, uh, in Las Vegas, actually, what, uh, in November, I think it yeah, was? not a long ago. A whiskey show, so that was uh, that was good fun. Um, I think the first time I saw you, you realised you'd forgotten the backdrop for your... Uh, your whiskey display. <laughs> that moment, that moment, because you were building your display unit right next to me, this beautiful light box for all, all the whiskeys that you're about to put out. And I was doing the same next time. And I was like, son of a bitch. Like, I actually <laughs> think it was like the case had been unlocked and relocked again. And I think somebody had maybe gone through it at customs or whatever and like taking something out to put it all back together and just left the screen out. Either way, we couldn't use our, our beautiful backdrop, so it was, a, it was a bit of a giggle. But Chris, Chris yeah. saw me have my mental breakdown that as was it was our, happening yeah. live. So I, know, it gave me the fear that I'd done the same thing. So we, we bonded <laughs> over over that. And then, and Mitch, I think I met you. I think in like twenty sixteen or seventeen, maybe in in LA. Yeah, um, dude. I think it was just when, it was just when you moved over there, right? Because what was it, yeah. twenty sixteen when you moved over? So I think it was twenty seventeen. You just not long bought the the store. I yep. met you at the store and then we went for a couple of beers after that. That's right, yeah. And then you moved away just after. So we were ships in the night a little bit. Exactly, mate. Exactly. Now it's good to see you boys. And really last time we I was saying to Nicholas, last time we were hanging out was uh the Whiskey Awards last year. Yeah, that was a cracking night. Can't remember much of it. Um <laughs> the latter parts of it anyway. But I was I was I was sitting next to Mitch, so it was a good good night and to get through it, I had to drink a lot, so it was um, understandable. <laughs> made, made for a good night, but no, I was that was that was great fun. So it was the night, yeah, Bob got inducted into the Hall of Fame. So it was uh, for Glen Turret. It was uh, a great night of celebration. So we, um, yeah, went went for it. That's for sure. And uh, I've not met Nicholas in person yet. I have spoken to him once before, but yeah. um, next time I'm out in New York, I'll, I'll certainly make a a call because John John claims he's a all right on a night out as well. So. Um, I, we, that was that talk about a big night of drinking. That was another one that was crazy. You need to pack your stunt liver 
Uh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I say so. Rory James Howard Jackson, RJH Jackson, right? When I told Mitch that you were coming to the show, he asked if you wrote Lord of the Rings, and of course that was <laughs> written by J. J.R.R. Tolkien and filmed by Peter Jackson. So, really, all joking aside, you were born in England but played for Scotland. So, how did this happen? And is it because you've always secretly wanted to get into Scotch whiskey in the long game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, to be fair, it was amazing how little that ever came out um, during my career. Um, I, I, we do our I homework here, uh, investigative journalists. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was just, I mean, I, I was pretty screwed by my, my parents. So, my, my sister was born. Uh, in Australia and got an Australian passport and then so my dad worked in oil and then he's so he's traveling around and then he was doing a bit of work in in London but stationed himself, himself up in Northamptonshire and that's where he had had myself and yeah I was there for about six months and then moved up to Scotland so I don't really have any any memories of being in England but it was um but yeah so definitely 100 <laughs> Scottish but just had the birth certificate state slightly otherwise <laughs> well north of england and scotland we got a lot in common but so did that did this affect you think and wanting to, to 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 be part of something very scottish obviously playing in rugby but then in the whiskey business as well do you think that kind of forced your hand because you wanted to overshow how scottish you truly were Prove how scottish i am yeah <laughs> uh, and strange actually my my real love for whiskey came when i was playing down i had a few years playing down in london and uh and whether it was just me being a tight Scotsman, but I wasn't going out as much. But after a game, you're always quite um, still full of adrenaline. You're not really wanting to to settle down. So my uh, post match would be uh, a good few whiskies in my house. Um, so yes, yeah, so that was where my my first real sort of love. So again, I don't know whether that was me trying to prove to all my English teammates that I was like, yeah. Look at me, I'm drinking whiskey after a game. And, and saving uh, money at the same time by not going out. You were really Scottish. Yeah. Logic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really nailing the stereotype. And then, Chris, I want to bring you you in here because you're both internationals and I know you played together um, in the same team at one point, but do you guys ever play for Scotland at the same time as well? I think so. I, don't, I think we we're, we're certainly in around squads. So yeah, so, I think we did. Jack was a wee, a wee bit younger. Are you six, five years younger, six years younger? Yeah. I'm 41 now. Yeah, 35, yeah, so six. Yeah, six years, yeah. We did. I'm about I, I, think we did. So. I think we did. I was probably clinging on at the end of my career and you were <laughs> in your prime. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure we crossed paths. We obviously played together at Glasgow a lot and we went to the same school in Aberdeen. Uh, but again, because okay. of, of my age, I was a wee bit older, but. Uh, yeah, there's not. I mean, there's not that many folk from Aberdeen. I think that have uh, kind of played internationally of late, actually. So I think Jacko and I would be two of the more recent ones. So yeah, I was definitely aware of him. I actually coached Jacko. I don't know if you remember this when he was like 13, oh, really? uh, and I was. I think I was early on in my career. I went up and coached, and there was a cheeky uh, little 13 year old that turned out to be. Jacko. Um, so I remember that was the first time I met him and I was like, who's that cheeky we get? But, <laughs> but I'd like to be quite a good player, so we, we crossed paths later on as well. Yeah, I mean, for really? me, it was like, uh, again, I want to just show Fuss's age, but um, like for me, growing up, being a sort of yeah, aspirational sort of rugby player, sort of having a guy from your school be not just a Scotland international, but a British Lion as well, it was always sort of a a dream of mine to to play with him. So when I did get a chance at Glasgow, and then I said, I'm sure we did play at Scotland, but when I was sort of in my prime, Cass was in a bit of a, there was a sort of 
a strong cohort of nines at that time with Mike Blair and Roy Lawson. And you were also vying for not just the starting spot, but captaincy as well. Um, so I'm sure we would have maybe played a couple of games for Scotland together. But, um, but yeah, for me, just playing with Tuss was, was pretty cool. And uh, but yeah, now he's, even though he is older than me, he's actually starting to look younger than me. It was probably the LA sunshine it's, rather than the Scottish. It's that LA, mate. Yeah, he, he knows a good uh, plastic <laughs> surgeon over there. They all do, you know. Either that but or... I you... wouldn't... You've maybe met that guy that's that... trying to reverse his age in LA. Have you seen this guy that's like living in uh, like an yeah, air yeah, chamber yeah. and taking 5,000? looks like an old guy trying to look young like everyone it's does. mental, isn't it? He just looks like a dude that's had a ton of plastic surgery. And I know he's <laughs> yeah. not, but it's like, see when somebody gets a facelift, you're never like that. Oh man, that 70-year-old looks like he's 30. You're like that. That 70-year-old looks like a weird alien. This guy's like a guy that's in his like mid-40s and he's, he's looking like a dude that's had a facelift and you're like, come on, man, just get old and enjoy it. But guys, I want to go back to, you know, it's, I think it's fascinating that both of you played rugby together and now you're both in the whiskey industry together. So let's get into your your separate journeys. And, and Chris, I'm going to start with you because we were chatting about kind of you and I hanging out, uh, you know, in L.A. 2016, 2017. Um, you had the, the 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 liquor store, as they call it, over in the U.S. How did all that come about? Like, why did you move to L.A.? Why did you open a, a store over there? Yeah, it's it's. It's, a, it's a, uh, an interesting story. So I, I always liked California and I really wanted to come and live here. And that was the the, the bones of it. And then as, as you come towards the end of your rugby career, you know, you have to try and find something else to do. And as Jack will attest to, it's quite difficult when you've done something your whole adult life and you've dedicated your life to being as good as you can at, at a sport. Um, and then all of a sudden it comes to an end. So I was 34 when I finished playing. And all those skills that you've built up, um, they're essentially useless in the real world. And it's it's quite a difficult time. But I decided to to try and live in California was was one goal. And then I, I kind of discovered Scotch whiskey a few years earlier, probably when I turned 30. And I, I'd never really paid any attention to it, despite obviously growing up and spending most of my life in Scotland. But I decided it was really interesting to me. And it was something that I really wanted to be involved with. And it was really, I, I like what it um, said about Scotland and what it represented about Scotland and the the craftsmanship and the history and the the people and, and all of that stuff I thought was brilliant and I thought you know this I, I need something and this I'm, I'm really into this so I spent when I was the last couple of years when I was at Glasgow I spent a bit of time touring distilleries and kind of learning about that did a couple of courses online and I said right I'm in but I want to do it in California I want to you know be away from Scotland and, and have a wee adventure over there. So this the store it was it was called Wine and Liquor Depot, and it was an old family business that had been there probably since the eighties, I think. And it was um, the the father had died and the son was looking to sell it, so they basically bought the store. And it was a complete leap of faith. And there's a I did the EB five program they call it over here where you can get a green card by investing in a business and creating jobs. So I said, okay, that's my that's my challenge. That's my goal. I'm going to move over there and give that a shot. So when I met you, I'd probably just, uh, yeah, not long bought the store. Uh, I knew nothing about running a business, knew very little about retail or about the three tier system and all that kind of stuff in America. So massive, steep learning curve, the most stressful period of my life by far moving over here, the, the, the kind of sticker shock of living in LA and how expensive everything is being an Aberdonian, you know, it, it, it was it was quite tough to take. Had one daughter at the time. So all that in one new business, new country, it was proper stressful stuff. But 
in the end worked out really well and um you know it turned into a great adventure I managed to grow the business I actually sold it in 2021 and it was I think it kind of fast-tracked my you know move into the real world because it was a bit sink or swim and you know learning a business learning an industry all that kind of stuff in a really condensed period was was actually a good way to do it do I want to do it again absolutely not I was nearly <laughs> but uh, I'm here now and I, I love I love California I love you know the Scottish whiskey business so it's it's all worked out well in the end there you go ja- Jacko and sorry really do you want me to call you Jacko because Chris has now called you Jacko a few times I'm like this is brilliant <laughs> the, the two of you refer to each other in your last names I'm assuming that's just that you know the the, the brotherhood that you create when you're playing in for, for for the national team but obviously you co you co-created uh, a company as well when you came out of the the rugby uh you know, obviously playing professional rugby, uh, the Garden Shed Drinks Company, which you created with another ex uh, Glasgow Warrior player, Ryan Grant. Is that correct? Yeah, and he's also now in whiskey as well. Is this, this, is this the employment pool for Scotch whiskey industry now? Is just the rugby? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seems to be uh, yeah natural. Seem to uh, follow at the moment, but yeah. So it's, I mean, I've, I've not managed to quite quite sell the business and like cuss uh yeah which is maybe one day the plan but it was uh yeah just when i was down down south and, and doing my whiskey sort of journey there I, was, I just started thinking what do i really want to do when i finish rugby because as Cus alluded to it's it's not easy you've got like people going to coaching and things like that but i kind of wanted to take a real step back and and leave the game not because i didn't like it but it was just to to sort of get a complete reset and refresh and rugby is your identity for so long it's, it's quite nice to sort of escape it as well um because it is on all, all sort of consuming but so i started getting into sort of speaking to people and networking um i'm quite a social person so i like like being out and about so i thought instead of maybe going down the studying route i might go down the networking route and see see what i can sort of achieve that way and eventually once i moved back up to scotland um for my last few years of rugby i was living with Ryan Grant for a little bit and we were just chatting away over a beer um, as you do and it's like what what can we do what can we do and we eventually decided to just buy a still off Amazon and we started making moonshine essentially <laughs> um, so hence the name the garden shed because that's where it was the idea was created we obviously for legal reasons have moved out of uh, Ryan's shed uh, and into a legal <laughs> premises to do our distilling but, and so that was really it it was just um, during your rugby career you have so much downtime and you're having coffees or having drinks and you chat so many about so many ideas like oh, we could do this we could do that but you just never really do it and then obviously when it starts getting closer to the end of the, your career you're like really need to think about stuff and although like the, the business is still going it's still fairly successful it's not not gone too huge um in markets pretty pretty tough right now um very yep. saturated but it's been a massive learning curve regardless as you say whether it's your to look after your accounts you're buying your dried goods like all the the nitty-gritty that you don't really think about when you're, you're setting up a company um and then you're sort of a salesman you're an ambassador you're everything so it kind of gave me a good bit of background before moving into whiskey which is what i really enjoy so wine and whiskey was sort of what i enjoyed in the sort of drinks industry and and, and went down that route so i think it gave me a good grounding and an understanding of, a, of different bits of the business and then yeah managed to luckily get a, a job at um, an amazing distillery at an incredible time for them as well so i definitely yeah. landed on my feet uh with the 
distillery that I ended up at, which was Glen Turret. Yeah, and you're looking after private client work there. Tell us a little bit about that and, like, you know, obviously moving into and we agree with you by the way glen turret is a fantastic distillery the whiskies are amazing you know they've done a really great job of, of of putting that brand to life like what are the similarities you know between obviously you know now you're trying to push this brand towards its own different goal line you know what what does that look like and and have you have you kind of navigated that that career change yeah i mean it's i think when when i moved in i sort of i, I was involved in a few different areas of the business i think John Laurie, my, my boss, sort of took me on and was like, he probably had a bit of a vision with how the distillery was going to go and the brand was going to go as a whole. So he maybe had an idea of where I was going to end up, but he sort of let me try a bunch of different areas. So whether that was branding, marketing, um, I was in the warehouse for a bit, all these sorts of different aspects of the business. And then with that sort of ultimate goal of creating that sort of private client network, because where we are as a business now we're, we're obviously a very small batch um produce tiny volumes of liquid but it has to come at a fairly premium cost to to make it a viable business and with the back and all the leak can we get to put some of our top end whiskey into these beautiful crystal decanters so they come with a fairly hefty price tag and we sort of realize that these types of clients who are parting with lots of money um probably need they certainly need a bit more sort of better um care and building those relationships and and that's what it's about for me it's not i'm ultimately a salesman but it's more about building loyalty and relationships to a brand where we we came from nothing we were were not nothing but like we in terms of that premium whiskey we we were selling 40 pounds of young whiskies um and wasn't a big thought to to promote these high-end sort of niche niche limited edition whiskies. So we had no black book. There was nothing that we actually came into. So it was how you grow that. And um, and yeah, so that's been my sort of main role is sort of building a bit of a, a private client network, um, tapping into whiskey collectors, investors, drinkers, all these these groups. Um, so it's been really interesting and it's been been a bit of a whirlwind. I think my wife gets a bit, bit grumpy with me because I'm traveling a fair bit and out drinking and socializing and building these relationships and and now that we can uh post covid that we can actually get face to face it's been a pretty hectic couple of years but it's been been great fun and it's been, been an amazing journey and for me getting to spend time with the likes of bob delgarno um he's putting together these whiskeys it's for for a newbie in in this industry getting to to learn from these guys who just have an incredible wealth of knowledge and and it's yeah it's been been a really cool journey for me so far very cool yeah, it's a great brand to work for as well. Um, Chris, I'm going to jump over to you, mate. Uh, you know, walk us through, you, you've obviously moved from into a different role within whiskey now, working from, you know, getting rid of the shop. And now you had Steve Lip come up to you and asked you to take over as CEO for um, Alexander Murray. Talk us through how that all happened and how that's going for you right now. Yeah, that, that's that opportunity came around after the store was sold and, Steve Lip is uh he's from Tariff originally. Um been out in California for twenty-five years, I think now. So he set up a company called Alexander Murray back in two thousand three. And I think when he when he moved over, he noticed that the the private label uh market in America for whiskey was quite far behind the European market, where you know a lot of that was well established, very competitive, um, the kind of you know, own brand. Um 
staff over here wasn't quite established. So he saw an opportunity and I think his first customer was Trader Joe's, who are a you know, well-known supermarket chain over here. And he, he got a PO from, from Trader Joe's and he was kind of uh, off and running and he's built the business up and um, done a, a phenomenal job really of doing that. He's got, we've got fantastic customers. Costco would be our, you know, obviously our biggest customer. We look after Trader Joe's. We do a lot of stuff with Total Wine, uh, Sam's Club. So we're in the in the private label game, and we have a few of our own brands. But it, it's kind of interesting because we don't, you know, we don't own a distillery. Obviously, we have really good relationships with uh, distilleries in Scotland, and you know, we have our our kind of sales arm over here, and we also import and distribute in, in California and a couple of other states. So it's um, yeah, it's a really interesting role, completely different to the store, you know the three-tier system, which you guys are familiar with, you know, you have to kind of navigate that and there's various ways of adding value. And, you know, our value really is in our connections in Scotland, which I think is why I enjoy the role so much because it allows us to travel back there a lot and, you know, source whiskey and meet with our partners. And then we have the ability to to bring it in here and put those deals together. So it's it's really, really interesting job. I'm really enjoying it. It's it's probably a little slower moving than the, than the retail sector, which is... You know, every day you're doing a lot of transactions and there's a lot of uh, you're running really fast just to keep up. But in this role, it's a little slower. Transactions are bigger. They take a little longer. Uh, we do like Jack was saying, we do a lot of relationship management with our customers who, you know, they really know what they what they want. So they're very discerning. So we have to make sure we can provide that uh, the value, the product that they need. Um, but it's for me, it's ideal because I, you know, I've lived in, in California for seven years, seven and a half years. But you know, I miss Scotland and I, you know, I love Scotland. So it's a great link, you know, between the two. And as I say, it allows me to come back um, two or three times a year. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm relatively new in the role, um, but so far so good. And big plans this year to to grow the business and to, you know, add more interesting projects. So it's probably, you know, I'm one of my seven and a half years post rugby and it takes a long time to figure out the real world and to figure out what you're good at and what you want to do. And I'd say I'm just about getting there now, but it's it's definitely been a, a journey. And um, you know, I, I I think the the whiskey business, as you guys all know, it's such a it's such a collaborative, friendly business. And Scotland's quite a small place, so those those um, relationships are, are key. And I just find that people are really really helpful. Um, people are pretty open. Um, a lot of stuff's done on a handshake, which I really really like. You know, that was the way that. For rugby, you know, especially my agent, we were all always on a handshake, a lot of trust there. So I just really like the business. Um, and um, yeah, we're going to, you know, stay in it for, for as long as possible. Yeah. And how, how are you finding it now? You know, we've spoken to a lot of independent bottlers on the show. And I think the general consensus right now is that it's getting harder and harder to source the actual whiskey with the current climate. Are you guys finding that? Or are you finding because you're so well established, you've got those relationships and you're not you're not having an issue? No, it's definitely tough this year in particular is uh, will be one of the toughest years. Um, I think COVID made it a little bit more difficult because a lot of the distilleries shut down for six months or so. And all of a sudden the whole world started drinking heavily and the the forecast and projections were off. So I think that's caused some issues. Um, but yeah, we have we have long established relationships, which are obviously really helpful. Um, you know, one day to buy a distillery, perhaps, you know, that would be a, Kind of long-term goal and you know a, a lot of the independents have, have obviously done that over the past few years guys like gordon mcphail signatory yeah, and guys like that, so. and share they can sell you if you want <laughs> <laughs> 
Perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, it's, it's 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 tough, but it's uh, you know there's there's whiskey out there, and I think uh, you know the, the the prices have gone a bit crazy, and and yeah. actually, you know, as you guys know, the the cask investment stuff is is added another dynamic to the business where there's perhaps a, a quick buck to be made there for some people, and it's skewing the prices a little bit. So. We'll see how, how that plays out and if that settles down. But I think, you know, because our, you know, our, our customers are long term, our suppliers are long term, you know, we'll we'll get through it. But definitely an interesting time for the Scotch whiskey world at the moment. Yeah. So actually, this next question is a bit, bit for both of you actually to talk about. And I think actually, um, really, you talked about this a little bit earlier, like after a game, you'd go and have a whiskey and that was, you know, your thing when you were down in London. What was that whiskey then? And what whiskeys do you like now? I'm, sh- I'm assuming that your palates have changed quite a bit. So like, what, what were you drinking back in the day? And uh, now what, what do you like to reach for? And you can obviously, we, we appreciate your own brands, but if there's other things outside <laughs> of your own brands, like we'd love to hear. Well, my my sort of entry into to whiskey is sort of metal. The, the whiskey that probably made me really appreciate the, the liquid was Balvenie 14 Caribbean cask. Um, so that was my sort of go-to. Um, obviously, it's super easy going, fruity, and it's uh, it's just a beautiful dram, and it's still one that I happily go back to um, regularly. Um, I've obviously drank a lot more whiskey uh, now <laughs> and <laughs> broadened my horizons. And uh, in terms of the whiskey that I've, I'm about to drink, it's uh, it's one of Glen Turret's peated ones, and I'm not a massive peat fan, but I think Glen Turret's if anybody's wanting to delve into Pete, who's not a Pete fan, I think we're a great brand in the sense that we're very light and sweet and it's not too heavy. It's not your big, so massive Isla whiskey. So it's, I'm starting to appreciate some peated whiskeys now. Um, so that's sort of, yeah, been an interesting evolution for me, but still I'm very much like a sort of nice, sweet, smooth, sort of space-side style. So yeah, anything from, yeah, still, still Balvenies a lot, but you're yeah, talking at yeah, Glenalkies, I think, are brilliant at the moment. Uh, Abelauer's, um, things like that are, are beautiful, nice, smooth whiskies. But some of Glen Turrets, I've been so lucky because yeah. my role is selling the more high-end uh, limited edition rare whiskies. I've got to taste some some amazing, amazing drams that, that we've put out. And probably my favorite is the Jaguar E-type that we did, which was... Uh, Ended up being a sort of thirty-year-old, but we didn't put the age statement. But it was um, two Oloroso casks and then a Monte Alto cask, and it was just uh, an amazingly like classic sort of sherry, but with some lovely elegance of sweet notes from the the Monte Alto, and it was just um, that's probably been my fra- favorite dram of of Glen Turret's recent editions. Awesome. What were you, Chris? Yeah, I'm thinking back. I remember I I got given a a bottle of Aberfeldy 12 by my father-in-law when I was in in Manchester, when I was at Seal Sharks. And I just, you know, I was quite new to it. And I just loved that dram. It was really gentle and sweet and soft and really lovely dram. So that was probably my kind of, you know, entry level dram, which is still a really lovely dram. Now I'm kind of really into all the big sherried whiskeys, to be honest. I've got a, a sweet tooth, so... I like all the you know the big sherry bombs and I when I when I sold the store I I had a kind of what I thought was a once in a lifetime opportunity to to buy you know a lot of bottles at cost that I probably would never buy otherwise so I took a few home and I had I had this uh, Glendronic it's like a 29 year PX cask it was dark and syrupy and it was just so delicious and that's definitely the best dram I've ever had so 
think we celebrated with a few friends and we drank that and ate some cheese and, and whatever and it was had a barbecue it was it was phenomenal and I, I can't forget about, it, about that dram um probably can't afford to to ever buy another one but <laughs> that was a grandeur bottle balls, it's on my kitchen shelf as a reminder but um yeah I, I like the big sherried ones i you know i just i just love the the kind of richness and the flavor and uh, yeah that's my that's my jam that's the thing I love that about a whiskey when it transports you back to that moment and you remember that moment. You know, for me, that's that's always key, and, and I, I think that's one of the, the the real great things about whiskey. Talking about memories, guys, we want to hear your best rugby stories, good or bad, or like <laughs> your favourite things. I mean, there must be points where you have to stand up and chat to people, and they they ask you about your rugby career. What do, what are the, the the little key nuggets or stories that you tell? Easy to tell my best one, um, and it brings us back to Aberdeen. Perhaps we'll remember this night as well. Um, back, supporting his bar back in Aberdeen at this time. Uh, but my second ever cap for Scotland was uh, coming off the bench against Samoa, but up in Pataudry. So obviously being an Aberdonian, uh, being an Aberdeen football fan, it was a pretty cool moment to play play at Pataudry and came off the bench, and it was a stupidly tight game. Um, and then we got penalty last play of the game and I got the kick to win the game. So it was pretty cool in front of all our friends and family, but it was also, it was obviously November internationals and it was just like this whiteout in Aberdeen in that evening as well. And we all piled into it. Plus had a, a, a venture at uh, this bar uh, in town. So we all went there, drinking in there. And by the time we came out, it was the first time and only time I've ever seen this. And Union Street was just like, covered in snow and there's not a vehicle in sight everything sort of kind of shut down there was somebody skiing down union street at like midnight <laughs> it was just the most surreal thing but it was just like obviously wild celebrations ended up obviously kicking off to the the nightclub after that but it was just um it was a crazy night and yeah definitely one of the highlights of of my life for sure uh in terms yeah. of rugby that's, that's awesome. funny i remember because i think i was injured uh as i regularly was but at the time of that game but I'd gone up during the week or, or the week before to do some press stuff and they did it at Pataudry. And like you growing up in Aberdeen, we, we watched Aberdeen Football Club, used to go to the games, used to love, you know, it was a big deal. Especially Aberdeen were good, you know, in the 80s. And uh, well, when I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, they were, they were a decent team. So I'd never been on the pitch before. So we were doing this photo shoot on the pitch and it was, uh, I think it was, I can't remember the guy's name, is it Mark McCall or something like that, who was the manager at the time. So yeah. we were doing like a little thing and, uh, he was like, can you do keepy uppies? And I'm like, oh, I'm nice so good at that. So we ended up doing like headers back and forth and they were filming it. It was all good. So then I was like, Sham on the Pataudry turf here, you know, the hallowed turf. I'm going to go and have a, have a, you know, have a go here. So I had the ball and I was like on the pitch and uh, literally an open goal, nobody in sight. And I was like shooting and I missed the open goal. So I get the starter. I was like, oh God, I wouldn't have done that. Brilliant. I yes. thought you were going to say there for a minute. I remember that night well, going home in my skis. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was probably Mark Evans or something. <laughs> so, guys, Gregor Townsend just announced the team. What do you think our chances are for this year's lads? Oh, stony silence. That's always a good start. <laughs> I think that means uh, shit, basically. No, I'll, I'll go first. I, I love watching Scotland now over the past few years. And I think it's because, it, you know, I didn't have a great time, you know, playing for Scotland in terms of success. It was a really difficult era, that 2004 to 14 
period as we tried to come to terms with professionalism and on all that kind of stuff. It was really difficult to mm. win a lot of games. So I watched I watched the, the, the team now and I, I still know just about a couple of guys, you know, guys like Richie Gray and Ali Price who were around at Glasgow when I was there. They play such good rugby. Finn Russell obviously is the man. Like I love watching them play. They play great rugby and Gregor's a great coach. So I really enjoy watching them. I love watching them knock off England, France, Wales, you know, over the past few years, all these teams that we really struggled to beat back in my day. So I'm living vicariously through them just now. And I think they'll do well. I, I don't, we haven't had too many guys retire. We're a wee bit thin on the ground in some positions, you know, in, in, the, in the forwards especially, but our backline's exciting. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I think, you know, we've got a real chance you know and, and we we're so much better than we used to be i think than what jacko thinks but um we have world-class players and you know a team that can can really be anyone on the day and so i'm, I'm optimistic I, I don't know if we're going to win it but i think we're going to definitely going to win some games and compete yeah no I, t- I totally agree it's um by far the best um scotland squad that we've had had in a long time and i think uh if they can so i think the biggest thing with scotland is if they can get even at least parity up front uh, and their set piece can can function. I think the line out's probably been the biggest hamstring of in the last year or so. I think if they can get that clicking, like the the threats and the attack that we've got in the backs and even some of the forwards in terms of their ball carrying, like we can we can definitely scare anyone and, and really sort of blow teams away. And I think it's that that relentless mentality. I think if they can sort of just really back themselves to cut loose and like I think. Wales is such a big game for us. Like if we can, we sh- on paper now we should cruise down there. But we've, I mean, it's still a bit of a bogey stadium for us to go down there and win. So, but in terms of the situation, as Chris said, we've not lost too many people. We've got some good continuity coming out. Guys have hit in their prime. Um, and whereas there's a few other teams in sort of transition that I think this is a year that we could really sort of have a bit of a crack at it. Like nothing really to to fear or lose. I think France and Ireland are still the favourites, but. I think there's the fact that we've got France at home is is a good good thing, and I think we can, uh, yeah, I think we could have a real crack at it. And it's, as Cus says, it's just at least we play really exciting rugby, and it's it is nice to watch. And it's uh, you're certainly going to have some fun moments. It's not like the, the days where it was a, a struggle to even score a try for for Scotland. So it's um, yeah, I think we're in a, a nice position, but it'd be nice to really sort of kick on again and take that next step and, and like winning a not necessarily a grand slam but winning a, a Six Nations would just be such an amazing thing for Scotland and Scottish yeah. rugby Agreed, well overdue Certainly is, yeah, and- it is. I, It's tough, you know I, I think I'm realistic about you know, about how, how, how well we do because we are a really small country and you know, we're okay, we're maybe the same size as New Zealand but you know, if you've been to New Zealand and you understand the, the rugby culture there and how many players they have. Like every little village in New Zealand has a rugby team. Everyone wants to play for the All Blacks. It's the main, you know, the main thing in town, main game. And in Scotland, it's not really like that. We're not, you know, I would say we're not a massive sporting nation. Football is the number one sport. So I think we're up against it. So that's why I think just now we have to enjoy it. Okay, we haven't won the Six Nations, the World Cup. We went out of the group stages, all that side. I think we're punching above our weight. And I think we probably have... a you know, a couple of once in a generation type players that will miss when they're gone. And obviously, Sure Hogg's retired. He was one of Scotland's best ever players. He's retired. Finn Russell is is phenomenal, and and maybe I would say our best ever ten. He's got a few years left in him, but then 
you know what what's coming up behind him. So I think we just enjoy it just now, you know, enjoy enjoy watching this team play. And you know, I, I'm not defeatist at all. I just think I'm realistic. You know, when we're up against France and England, and you see the resources they have, and um, you know how many, how much depth they have, how many professional teams, all that stuff. We are, um, I think, we're punching above our weight. Um, and and for us to become a New Zealand or a, or a France, like it would, it takes it would take a huge kind of a shift maybe in culture and the the grassroots stuff to bring in bring through more players and i don't think it's quite there yet from what i understand we all, we bring in guys you know we we kind of naturalize guys from from other countries or we we scour the world looking for guys who are scottish qualified which i think we've had to do but i'd love to see more more guys coming through from aberdeen or um mm. you know or, or any of the kind of the, the school game and um yeah i think we've we've, we've got a good time just now we should, we should enjoy it yeah. Well, gents, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for the for your time. We know you're both uh, busy guys. Uh, we look forward to to hopefully catching up for a dram with with you guys soon. Uh, Chris, any plans coming over to Scotland this year? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I'm going to be over in in March actually. So yeah, I'd be delighted to to get together for a dram, and then I'll I'll be back in the summer as well. So um, nice. Love to get up to Speyside and, and visit. Yeah, Rudy, well, you same with you, Rudy. We need to, yeah, we need come, to hang out again, mate. When's Rudy coming to New York? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully soon. Um, but yeah, it's uh, we there was plans to potentially be in January, but but the plans got a bit kiboshed. But um, but no, certainly. Um, yeah, speaking to to our guys over there, we'll definitely be looking to to get over sort of fairly soon. Um, it is a very important market for us. So uh, and yeah, Mitch, we can. We can certainly hook up before that, I'm sure. Um, need to get back to the distillery, or if you want to, if I'm up in Speyside once the snow clears, that's for sure. Um, might might pin your ear and get get a couple of drams up there. Yeah, Fantastic. look forward to it, man. Well, guys, thanks very much for being in the show. For everybody that's tuning in, thanks for joining us on Not Another Whiskey Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and share on Instagram. And we shall see you next week. Bye.